I am thankful today to have the privilege of introducing my brother in Christ, colleague in ministry, and one who has been a mentor to me. Dr. Robert Wilson was born in Mountain, New Brunswick, was educated at the United Baptist Bible Training School, which is now Crandall University, also at Gordon College and at Gulf University under W. Stanford Reed in areas of 19th century British evangelicalism. Sorry. <laughs> After teaching one year at that university, he moved to UBWGS, where he was the Dean of Arts and Assistant Professor of History in 1961. Twenty years later, he appeared at ADC, and here he came, became the Academic Dean and Professor of History, as well as Professor of Church History at um, in the college following Dr. Gerald K. Zeman. He is married to Myrna Secord. They have two children, Jonathan and Rachel, and the three grandchildren. I can say to you that um, Dr. Wilson has been one of the inspiring persons in my life that God placed me back in the 1970s when I was a student at Atlantic Baptist College. I still remember sitting in his office and him saying to me, Lionel, I think that God has better things for you than just one year in Bible and then back to Guyana. And here I am today. And thanks be unto God for him. So I encourage you, there are mentors that God places in our lives. Pay attention to what they're saying to us. Don't take them lightly. God may be speaking a word to you. Dr. Wilson has also published several um, articles and books and is involved in several areas of ministry in the local organizations, which I do not have time to go into as he comes to us now and bring the word of God. May the Lord bless you as you minister to us. Thank you very much, Lionel. It's good to be with you. And uh, unless you're worrying about your soup lunch, I'm used to going to special events with an accordion sermon. So that... Uh, <laughs> It's always a joy to be with you in terms of, of chapel. And you'll notice I come and slip out each day. And uh, it won't happen next term because my class will be on Tuesday. But Verna's uh, health is not very good. And so I usually am not away a whole lot of time. Just a comment about the prayer time. It's a good Acadia tradition. 1855, a group of students were getting ready on a Sabbath day morning for a prayer time and getting ready to go to church. And they began to pray for... Uh, their fellow students, and the Holy Spirit began to move among them. They repented of their own sins, got right with God, and uh, for a whole week they had to cancel classes because they weren't sure what to do with it. Uh, Cramp, who was the president at that time, had come from England, and he said, I'm not used to this kind of thing, so I gave it over to the students. And so for a whole week they had their own kind of revival services, and uh, Isaiah Wallace says that all but one was converted of the students. And I always wonder who that one was. I don't know where he was. <laughs> but it started something that went on for half a century. No student body of Acadia for the next half century left this campus without calling upon God for some kind of a movement of his spirit in a remarkable way. And it continued on until 1905. So it was that kind of remarkable thing. I say that, it's not part of my message, but it's part of my role as historian. <laughs> in First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3, he said, 
Paul says, we continue to remember before our God and Father, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. I was really wrestling for what kind of a theme to put on this morning's message, and I found it on Sunday morning as I was going into Halifax to preach. The former president of Ireland was commenting about her role as she was now in a, a, a period of time in which she's doing a lot of work both for the UN and other things. And she told a story about Archbishop Desmond Tutu. Now, I assume you all know that he, an Anglican Archbishop in South Africa, and came up through apartheid and all that that meant. He had struggled and in the wrestling with that had tried to maintain his clear gospel witness. In the panel, he was talking about how God has moved and how things can be better, and one of the commentators asked him, why are you such an optimist? Because you have experienced so many awful things and seen so many awful things. He said, I'm not an optimist. I'm a captive to hope. (laughs) I'm not an optimist, I'm a captive to hope. For those of us who walk after our master, we are captives to hope. To be any other thing is not to be faithful to the one who has called us. This is a fascinating letter that Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica. Probably the first letter to be written in the New Testament, although some would suggest Galatians. Either way, months apart in terms of being written. He's writing to a group of people with whom he'd spent probably a month, maybe five weeks. And so it's not a group with whom he sat and taught and had such a long experience. It tells about his welcome there. And it says a number of Jews from the synagogue, some Gentile God-fearers, and some principal women of the city... The implication is that some of the women of the leaders of the city had been going to the synagogue. And then a riot breaks out. He's forced to leave, flees to Berea. Silas and Timothy go back. He goes on to Athens, and there he preaches that famous sermon on the Areopagus. He goes on then to Corinth, and the letter was probably written then from Corinth, perhaps six to eight months since this church had been established. But when we say church, probably a fellowship of believers is a better phrase. There's not much church structure at that point in time. Those will come in his later letters. As he writes back to them, he says, You have become sounding boards of faith to all of Greece. I like the word sounding board because I think it catches a theme that's a little bit better. In 1857, October, the Indian Mutiny, or the first... it. Revolutionary War in India, depending upon your perspective, was going full force. And there was a day of humiliation and prayer that had been called for the nation. And Charles Haddon Spurgeon was in the Crystal Palace, spoke to a congregation of 27,000 people, no megaphones, nothing of that sort. Over his head was a sounding board. And that sounding board took that sound and reflected it out and those in Thessalonica would know what that is because in Greek theaters, uh, theaters, not only are the acoustics wonderful, but the sounding boards could project things out. I like that sounding boards because it means that it's reflected and goes out. Paul said they became followers of us 
you became followers of us and of Christ. Remember that there's none of the Gospels but written. The only thing they know of the Gospel is what Paul and the others taught them on Sabbath days in synagogue as they opened the Scriptures and explained that Jesus Christ was Messiah, that He had been crucified, dead, buried, rose again, and He's coming again. It's really on that last emphasis that I want us to spend some time this morning because the blessed hope for the New Testament church was the assurance they had that Jesus Christ was not only Messiah and brought about changes in their lives, but that He was coming again. Someone has said that as we take a look at this faith, hope, love, faith is rooted in what's happened in the past. Love is how we reflect what God's doing in our life now. Hope looks forward to the future with confidence. What is hope? How do you react when somebody says to you, I bought a 649 ticket and I'm hoping to win $15 million? Now they've got more of a chance of being struck by lightning than winning that $15 million. But that's why we use the word hope. But for the believer, hope is not a wishful thinking or pie in the sky that something's going to happen someday. Our hope is firmly rooted in the finished work of Jesus Christ and the understanding that He's coming again for His people. And if we should die before, which is part of the passage here, those who are dead will be coming back as well. And so, all they have known in the context of the gospel is the life of these people. I'd like to go to your youth group, either church, some Sunday morning and say, now if you want to really know what it is to be a Christian, live how I live, do what I do. But that's the only thing the Thessalonians had was the example of these believers who had come among them. And they became examples, sounding boards. This letter is filled with practical advice because it was not a perfect church. By the way, as someone has said, if you ever find one, don't join it because it won't be perfect anymore. <laughs> in the midst of that, in the midst of that whole understanding, some of them brought their, their ways of living that had been theirs before, and so he had to write them up, to them about sexual immorality. It would fit well within the context of even our modern world, as he says, don't do what the world does. He talks about those who have been so taken up with that blessed hope and the second coming that they'd given up their jobs. Now they had to ask their neighbors for some money so that they could live, because they expected Jesus to come back so soon. By the way, church history is filled with those people who have had that kind of expectation. In the wake of the French Revolution in particular, there's a lot of speculation about Antichrist and the papacy and the Ottoman Empire and who is Antichrist and all that flows from that. You can still hear it if you happen to listen to Jack Van Impey on television or some others who are very much part of that. Realize that this is also the birth of what we would call the dispensational movement with the secret rapture of the church. By the way, I don't think that's what Paul's talking about in this letter at all. It's not going to be a secret. When he comes back, it's going to be plain for all to see. And so, just so you catch a little bit of the dynamic, I've, uh, there's a God, Baptist minister by the name of William Miller who prophesied that Jesus Christ was going to come back in 1844. He had it all laid out. People uh, sold their things. And why they sold them, I'm not quite sure, because what would you do with the money if Christ is coming back? Nonetheless, 
They sold everything. They built tabernacles. They dressed in white. They were all waiting for Jesus to come back. Down in Dulap's Cove, just up from Annapolis Royal, out on the shore, they built a tabernacle in 1844. As good maritimers, some of them Baptists, expected Jesus was going to come back, and this date was set, and lo and behold, he didn't come. They tried the next year, and similar thing didn't happen. By the way, they then said, well, he moved in heaven. <laughs> That's the birth of the Seventh-day Adventists. Because it comes out of that Adventist movement that really has its roots in William Milner, the Baptist minister, and with the Seventh-day Baptists, which is where they got the seventh day. During the 19th and 20th century, there are a lot of sermons about the coming, second coming of Christ. I can remember as a boy, and I am that old, that there were prophecy conferences in Atlantic Canada and, and you'd go to church and you'd see these wonderful charts that told you exactly all the things that were going to happen and many of which have not happened yet but I trust they will because he is coming back. I just want to make a point here that eschatology is important. That you know what you believe about the second coming of Jesus Christ. Particularly that he is coming. The other things become matters of speculation what I find interesting when you read aspects of church history, those who see the second coming as a fast way out of the world have a view towards politics in the world which is quite different from Calvin and Luther and the others who really believed the gospel was strong enough to change the world, not to take you out of it. And so I think we need to understand what we believe about the second coming. It has been a lively issue ever since the beginning of the church. And so as Paul writes to them, he says, I don't want you to be ignorant because they were worried because some people had died even in the months that Paul had been away. What's going to happen? And so he says, they will not be taking second place. They will have gone and come back again with Christ. So what are the implications then of being a captive to hope? What's it mean when we talk about living in hope as a believer? Well, first of all, we live in anticipation. Our Lord was so wise, as you might expect God to be. He said, I'm coming back, but He didn't say when. You would expect that if He said, I'm coming back in the year 1000, and you will know it, there would be 998 years in which people would have said, well, I don't need to worry yet. And the church would have had its major crisis and probably have died in the way. He said, I'm coming back. I don't even know the time. It is in my Father's hands. Which is why we always need to be suspicious of people who come and say, I know the time. A man by the name of Hugh Grattan Guinness, Guinness Stout family. Uh, remember the good uh, Baptists and others in, in uh, Britain are not necessarily teetotalers. And uh, he wrote a book, Coming Into the Age, in which he said, Jesus Christ is coming back in 1914 or 1915. We don't have time for students to get education. We don't have time for all these things. Get out and evangelize. He'd also been swept up in what's become known as dispensationalism, and that whole understanding of, of the church and, and the fact that he's coming so soon. And so there's a whole generation of people who didn't bother getting the education that would sustain them for the life of the church. So we live in anticipation. We live in anticipation not only that he's coming back, but that we're going to be with him should we, he tarry. One of the interesting things for me living as I do, 
with uh, Myrna in these days is that she's much more conscious of heaven, I need to tell you, than I am in her understanding of, of God's leading. And she's had opportunities to share it with people in strange places sometimes about heaven and that which will come. The second thing, the implication is that we can serve with confidence. The calling of God on the believer's life is to minister to people in the name of the risen Christ, to seek righteousness in our own lives and to call others to Jesus Christ and call for justice in our world as we speak into our world in the name of Christ. So we serve with confidence. We have that hope within us. Thirdly, that we face all of life with endurance. That's what Paul says here in terms of it. He says, your endurance in hope. Some would use a, a phrase that was perhaps softer, but endurance implies that no matter what God gives or allows to happen in your life, you endure. My friend Ernie Spearing, who's been with the Lord now for about 20 years, delighted to say that the church is the only army that went into a battle knowing who's going to win. We know that no matter what, Christ will triumph. In the midst of our own world, as we look around at the church, particularly in Canada and the United States, we can shake our heads and worry about the decline in numbers and all that. We've got to realize that the center of, of optimistic and radical Christianity has moved from us. It's in Africa, it's in Asia, it's in places where we thought we had to evangelize and now we need to have them come and evangelize in our world. The last thing I would suggest is that our message is one of hope. We bring a message of hope to a dying and hopeless world. Loneliness is a major affliction in our world because people feel that no one cares. But in Christ, we proclaim that there is one who always cares. And we can testify to that. In closing, I want to just turn to Romans chapter 15, verse 13. As Paul writes much later in his ministry life to the church at Rome. And you'll notice what he says. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. We often use that phrase, faith, hope, love, and the greatest of these is love. But I want you to understand that hope is the sustainer of love. It's the thing that gives us the confidence that the love of God will shine in our lives. It's the thing that allows our brothers and sisters who are facing persecution around the world to continue to do it with endurance. It's the thing that enables the people on their deathbed to look in the face of Christ and know that He's there to meet them. I had an interesting experience several years ago. Our next door neighbor was dying. I'd gone up to see the daughter and I knew that she was alone with her mom. And uh, she had asked me some years earlier if I would preach her funeral. So I felt comfortable in going to visit her although I was not her pastor. And I had the joy that day of watching her slip into eternity as I sang some hymns to her. And she was a lady of hope who didn't speak a lot about her faith, but she was radiant in her neighborhood. She was a woman of hope. Now the God of hope 
fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's my benediction for you today. Our God, we thank you for your leading in our lives. Make of us a people of hope that we might share that blessed hope with our world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.